Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and culture. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories including easing parking restrictions to aid social distancing and investments in future transport zones. With the passing of the great motor racing driver Sterling Moss, we have an extended interview on his life and times with John Crawford who was a personal friend. And Rob Fraser and I discussed travelling to the western New South Wales town of Canoundra in a couple of utes. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going first, the news. Motor racing has lost one of its favourite sons. Sterling Moss lived the life of the daring, debonair racing driver. Arguably Britain's best-loved motor racing driver, Sterling Moss, has died at the age of 90. His first professional race was in 1948, when he was just 18. He had a monumental crash in 1962 and was put in a coma for a month. Up till then, he had won 16 Grand Prix. His success was hampered because he preferred to race British cars, stating, better to lose honourably in a British car than win in a foreign one. Moss was runner-up four times and in third place on three other occasions in the Formula One championships. He won 40% of the races he started in, but more impressively, he won 56% of the races in which his car did not break down. 2018 was a good year of growth for Honda, but in 2019 they staggered and now, so far this year, they have stumbled. Honda has had a tough time in 2020 and is now in a tight tussle with Subaru for the ninth spot on the sales list in Australia. For the month of March, all their top-selling models have declined in sales by more than 20%. They recently upgraded their Civic model, including as part of their Honda Sensing platform, a new high-beam support system. The great feature they have had for a while is that when you put your left-hand indicator on, it gives you a full camera coverage on the infotainment screen inside your car of the left-hand side black spot with no distorting effect. Civics are priced from $22,700 to $34,000 plus on-road costs. When, or perhaps if we get over the coronavirus, will people rush back to the old way of doing things? In transport, the UK is looking for a new future. The UK government has pledged the equivalent of $177 million to three future transport zones, to test new ways of transporting people and goods. West of England Combined Authority will trial systems to book one-way journeys across multiple modes of transport and autonomous vehicles to transport people between Bristol Airport and the centre of neighbouring city Bath. Portsmouth and Southampton will also trial options for last-mile deliveries, including e-cargo bikes in cities. The government is looking for consultation on the impact of electric scooters 
on transport with safety requirements relating to minimum age, vehicle standards and insurance. It will also consider if local authorities should have extra powers to manage the impact of where e-scooters can be parked. There's a growing concern about distracted walking, particularly pedestrian distraction, from looking down at mobile phones. Flashing LED lights embedded into pavements could improve the safety of pedestrians distracted by their phones, according to the Queensland University of Technology. Their research compared the reaction times for people on their phones when there were flashing lights in the pavement versus face-level lights. They also analysed people just listening to music or voices on their phones. The differences aren't huge. Reaction time for ground lights compared to eye-level lights improved by 159 milliseconds for lights that were 1 metre away and 43 milliseconds for lights that were 2 metres away. More work needs to be done. With less traffic on the road but social distancing adding to delays in shops, do we need the same parking restrictions that we had in the past? The Mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, has relaxed parking enforcement across the city as more people are staying home but then need more time when they do essential errands. Keeping your distance at a supermarket may add time but social distancing should not be compromised because of concerns about getting a ticket. The order includes a freeze on parking fine increases for the next two months, an extended grace period for people dropping off or picking up groceries and goods, and extended payment deadlines. Enforcement is being maintained on operations that prioritise health, safety and emergency access, including street sweeping, peak hour restrictions and repaving operations. The debate about the overall effect on pollution of electric vehicles continues. Are electric vehicles greener than those powered by fossil fuels if you consider all emissions from the production and the generation of electricity? A study by the Universities of Radboud in Nijmegen in the Netherlands and Cambridge and Exeter in the UK shows that the use of electric vehicles leads to lower carbon emissions overall, even if electricity generation still involves substantial amounts of fossil fuels. The consequences of COVID-19 in the huge reduction in local pollution points to the value of reducing the number of vehicles that are using fossil fuels. If you take climate change out of the equation, then the advantage of non-fossil fuels needs only consider local pollution, and the benefits are now obvious. And that has been the news. In an introduction to one of his written pieces, John Crawford was defined as a child of the motor car, which started with pedal cars and dinky toys and ended up with PR with Jaguar. One of his abiding friendships was with Britain's most gifted driver and one of great character, Sir Sterling Moss, who has just passed away. John joins us on the line now. John, thank you for this opportunity. It's a pleasure, David. In 1961, you caught a train to Western Sydney. What was the event and was it important? Yeah, it was, as a matter of fact. I went with three mates. We uh, decided to go to this uh, new circuit called Warwick Farm. And um, we sat on the top deck of the grandstand under no protection from the sun, beating down in the middle of a Sydney summer to watch these international drivers racing at the new Warwick Farm circuit. 
and um, we were just so impressed with the speed with which they drove, the confidence with which they drove. And of course, there were a, a huge number of um, local drivers. Lex Davison, Alan Jones's father, Stan Jones, uh, was running a car. And um, the internationals just um, exuded such fantastic confidence, but none more so than Sterling Moss. And um, we were all very amazed when Moss's car appeared on the grid for the main event without any side panel. And um, the commentators were equally bemused about the whole thing. And finally, after he had won the race very easily from Jack Brabham, whose car had, um, had failed on him, and I might say that Brabham was very close to him and hot on his t tail most of the race, but once Brabham's car failed to continue, Moss just literally ran away from the field. And when he was interviewed after the race and the commentator, Keith Regan, said to him, um, Sterling, uh, the car looks unfinished. Uh, there are no side panels. To which Sterling replied, look, old boy, it's bloody hot down here in Sydney, and uh, I just had to get some cooling air on my driver's suit. It is ironic that Jack Brabham's car failed and Moss's didn't. We'll talk about his his overall results in a little while, but versatility was a critical part of his. Why do you think 1955 was one of his greatest years? Well, I think really the, the whole versatility thing starts from his concept of becoming a professional racing driver. At that point in time, there was no such thing. There was nobody whose day job was a racing driver. And basically, Sterling was very adept at finding people who would pay him to drive their cars, and then he would negotiate very hard with the organisers. Once, once he'd begun to build a name for himself, and that, that happened very quickly, he was very adept at negotiating with the organisers of the race meetings how much the prize money would be and how much he would get, which was all very important because the money he took home from that race meeting, from being paid to drive and winning the race, was what uh, gave him the financial impetus to go forward. But when he won the uh, the trophy in Dundrod in in Northern Ireland, in Ireland, in blinding rain and incredibly strong winds, um, he literally ran away from the field, proved his absolute competence in the wet, and beat the factory Jaguar team so um, impressively that Sir William Lyons immediately offered him a place in the Jaguar racing team. And 55, he did some other things too, which included, was it his first Formula One victory? Yes, he had raced um, in various formulas. And, and in those days, those cars were um, tiny wisps of things. He used to drive what was called a Cooper Jap, which was a, a chassis created by John Cooper. But it was powered by um, a JAP uh, motorcycle engine. Very, very skinny tyres and wheels on it, but he was so incredibly quick. And, of course, as he showed his com his fellow competitors, incredibly smooth. Um, he never stressed the car. But having said that, in the course of his whole career, if a car let him down and broke down, he would very scornfully say to the manager of the team, well, if you can't give me a car that will last the distance and go as hard as it can to win, what's the point? You've described him as a racer, not just a driver. What did you mean by that? Uh, Sterling set out to win every race. And I don't mean by foul tactics either. I mean, he just simply assessed the competition, assessed the track in practice, and then realised he would work out tactically how hard he had to go lap by lap in order to beat either his uh, most favoured competitor, 
or the track itself, um, or the quality of the car. If he was confident in the quality of the car finishing the race, he would just go absolutely hard, and he would apply the same discipline to every single lap. Uh, you could uh, measure his laps on a stopwatch, and they would vary by you know, minute uh, parts of a second. I find that astounding when you consider everything that's rushing by at such a frantic pace and the, the ability to put a car in the same place every time sounds boring, yet must take the most immense concentration. Was that one of his strengths? Absolutely, but I think his most famous phrase, and in fact it's on an inscription in a book that he inscribed for me that, that I, I got him to, to autograph, and he says, and this is, was his lifelong philosophy, motion is tranquility. So... Uh, you'd have to say that when he was behind the wheel, he was in the best spot he could possibly be. That was his area of control and expertise, and his concentration never, never wavered. His domain. Indeed. And it wasn't just race cars either. Yes, the Millimilia was probably his most famous victory off a regular motor racing circuit. He entered the Millimilia, which, of course, is 1,000 kilometres, a race that starts in Brescia in northern Italy, goes to the south, turns around in Rome and comes back up through essentially public roads back to Brescia. And he entered the race in the Mercedes-Benz SLR. That car, incidentally, is preserved in the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart and is now certainly, when he gave up public life, that car was put back in the museum and uh, with instructions from the management that it was never to be taken out again unless it was to be driven by Sterling Moss. But he drove that car, number 22 was its number. Alongside him was uh, the very famous motorsport journalist, the uh, continental correspondent for Motorsport magazine, Dennis Jenkinson. And he and Jenkinson put in a huge amount of work before the Mille Mille in 1955, noting, and they drove the course many times, making notes about slow bends followed by fast bends or vice versa, uh, humps over bridges, areas where if there was a hard landing it could damage the car. And these notes were put onto, um, it's a, Jenkinson himself described it as a, a roll of toilet paper that he kept unrolling. Those were his root notes written on a piece of paper on a cardboard tube which he then simply rolled towards him and read the driving instructions to Moss. But the most amazing thing about this win and something that in the life of the entire Mille Mille race of all the years that it was run is that nobody, no other driver ever matched his average speed for the 1,000 kilometres, which was 99.95 miles an hour. It's a little bit like Bradman's batting average, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Perfection on four wheels. I looked at his figures. He won 212 races of 529. That's 40%, which is astounding. But even more astounding was he won... 212 out of 375 that he actually finished, which is a record of 56%. That is unparalleled given the variety of races that he entered. Indeed. And uh, he even managed to drive a, a big Jaguar Mark 7 one year in, um, in the Monte Carlo Rally. Um, and his versatility uh, really was all about how adept he was at the wheel of any car. Once he understood the car and how it handled, Sterling really had no problem with the event that he was in, whether it was a rally, a hill climb, a circuit race, 
um, or something like the Mille Milia. He bought a bomb site in Shepherd Street, Mayfair. Um, I think he paid about £5,000 for it. And it was a World War II bomb site. The, the building that had been there previously had been completely levelled. In cooperation with an architect, he designed a magnificent six-storey house, which was quite narrow, which was why it had to be six storeys in order to get the required amount of living space. And he designed this magnificent house. Then he promptly spent about a year or a year and a half going around Britain negotiating for things to build the house, the bricks, the timber, the flooring, the, the internal walls, the, the decorations, the furniture. And the whole thing was based on the fact that the Sunday Mail was going to do a feature about Sterling Moss's house over three Sundays. And they were going to feature every part of the house, including his intercom system, which connected the front door and the living room and the office and his bedroom. And uh, at any part of the house, you could talk to Sterling wherever he was. And so consequently, he built the entire house, furnished it, decorated it, the whole thing, for some miserable amount of money. I, he never, ever told me what it was, but just about everything he'd negotiated, which uh, gives you an insight into uh, his skill as a negotiator. And you stayed on the sixth floor, I think. Yes, my wife and I used to go and stay at Shepherd Street on a fairly regular basis over a few years, and um, we were um, always shown to the guest room on the sixth floor, and Sterling and Susie had a, a little West Highland White Terrier pup called Caesar, and Caesar used to climb the spiral staircase every morning and woof outside the door of the guest bedroom to be let in so he could come and say good morning. You said, of course, that he did not like the idea of moving to Monaco to save tax. He was staunchly British, wasn't he? Even to the point of driving the not the most powerful cars or the best developed cars, but at least the ones built in Britain. Was that part of his passion? He was incredibly um, patriotic. And I think probably the best example of that was what he considered to be his finest Formula One Grand Prix win, which was the 1961 Monaco Grand Prix. He was entered in a privately owned car. The car was owned by Rob Walker. And it was a Lotus 18 with a Climax engine and significantly underpowered compared to the Ferraris in 1961. But through skill and determination, he basically outwitted the Ferraris and everybody else and uh, romped home with uh, probably about three car lengths from the next Ferrari, which I think was his good friend, the American Phil Hill. You managed to perhaps sit beside Sterling Moss and Fangio as they drove around, but you also had a chance to experience him handling a vehicle when one of his renting places, the place he rented to other people, had a broken lock. What happened then? I was working in America at the time, and in those years, let's say between um, I don't know, 1990 and 1995, when I used to go across to Britain, I used to fly on a, a Saturday and I'd land in Britain on a Sunday morning about 6am and then I'd get a taxi into town and go and stay with Sterling and Susie for a couple of days before I physically started work at Jaguar, Coventry. Anyway, the, the problem is that here we have a man who's a brilliant driver, but give him a, a hammer and a chisel and a screwdriver and he's absolutely hopeless. So his uh, caretaker for his properties that he had amassed around London, was on vacation this time. And I arrived at Shepherd Street at about 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and as he opened the door, he said, Oh, haven't got time to waste. 
So I put your suitcase in the lounge room. Um, uh, take your, your long coat off. C -c Come with me. We're, we're the bloody tenants over at Elgin Mansions have broken the door lock and we've got to replace it. So he backs the motor scooter out of the garage. I thought we were going in his car. He put the toolbox on the footplate and his feet on the toolbox, gave me the lock, and I hung around, gripped his waist for grim death because we took off like a Grand Prix race to scurry across London from Mayfair to Maidervale to this uh, block of flats that he owned in Elgin Street in Maidervale, went in and found that the two chaps who were renting this apartment, both of them from Pakistan, had broken the door lock. On the back of the scooter, you cuddled Sir Sterling Moss. I did. You wouldn't have been the only person to do that. Did he get much fun out of motor racing? Oh, I think... How can I answer that? It's a difficult question, actually, David. I think it, it was his life, and he, he took his life, his racing life, very, very seriously. But I think all the fun was off track. When he left the track, he'd go back to the hotel and change... And somebody once asked him, you know, what's the greatest thing about motor racing, Sterling? And he said, chasing the crumpet, of course. John Crawford, I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. David, it's been a great pleasure to talk about a wonderful friendship of 40 years with one of the greatest racing drivers it's been my privilege to know. A sad time for you. Yes, indeed. Thanks again. And that was John Crawford, motoring writer, ex-PR man who has a long history in the motor industry that created some great friendships, not the least of which is that with Sir Sterling Moss. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, last time we spoke, we had mentioned an expedition we had taken in two utes, a Hilux and a Novara from Nissan, the Hilux, of course, from Toyota, and uh, we went to Canoundra out in the western part of New South Wales, which is home territory to Rob Fraser. G'day, Rob. David, how are you? Very well. You lived in Canoundra? When I was a, a little tyke, I did, yes. My, my dad was a bank manager, so we, we moved there as one of his rotations. I mean, I've got very fond memories of it. Living in town was only for a small period of time, but throughout my entire life, I've continued to go back there. It really is a, it's a home away from home for me. It was a time when the bank manager held a great position, I don't mean authority in dictatorship, but of prestige in towns such as that. And it was in the days when bank managers actually worked with their clients to help them build their businesses. And and I remember as a teenager going back and walking down the main street and seeing some of the old farmers there and chatting away to the, the people I was with. And when I was introduced, they looked at me and they said, oh, you're Ken Fraser's son, aren't you? And I said, yes. And immediately I was welcomed with open arms. Put in a good word for with your dad, was it? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah no, very much so. He, he'd moved on by then. But, I mean, it, when he was the Mac manager there, he was also the president of the Rotary Club and you know, my mum was the secretary or the treasurer and... You know, it was a small country town and you were actively involved in the community. And your mum did some things with tennis? A lot of the local teenagers, you know, didn't have much to do in town, unlike the farms where they work hard. So she, she managed to convince a pile of people to clean up some old tennis courts. She was an A-grade tennis coach, so she started off a, a junior tennis club, which was quite popular. With the coronavirus around, it wasn't deserted in the main street, just not a lot of activity. No, not a lot of activity, but 
I mean, for anyone who's been out in the country, they, they tend to maintain their social distance at the best of the times. You know, they, they don't like getting too close to other people. They'll talk and they're friendly, but they certainly don't like standing next to you. you if it was normal times, the handshake would be from a lean forward position. <laughs> There's no sort of man hug. Uh, no, man hugs are definitely forbidden. A great history in the town. There's some lovely old buildings in the main street, but it's not just the main street that does extend out beyond there. How many people would live there? Look, I think it's about uh, 1,800 to 2,000. Not a lot of people. A lot of very old names that have been there for generations. And for a small country town, it's actually quite interesting because it has one of the world's leading fossil museums there, the, the age of fisheries that's there. And people come from all around the world to see the fossils that have been discovered around there. Run by a father of motoring journalist. Uh, yes, yes, one of our compatriots. There is a little local museum there run by volunteers and there's a plaque with a reference to a local policeman who was shot by one of the bushranger gangs as he tried to defend the town. It's a lovely sort of reflection back to a time past. Ben Hall was very prominent in the region and in fact, on the back roads out from Yagara was where he f staged one of his famous stagecoach holdups. I actually had a friend in town whose last name was Hall, and they cruelly named their son Ben. I'm not sure why they did that, but uh, yeah. Maybe they wanted to be outliers, rebels with a cause or without a cause. But it's interesting, any of those small country towns in New South Wales or anywhere around Australia, really, when you actually dig into the history, there's a very strong and proud history of people who have fought against the odds to make the town what it is. Transport can be very critical to them. I think the railway line went in through there pretty early on and that's a, a strong reflection. What's happening now in a lot of rural towns is whether they're providing some bus services but doing it based purely on finance, which means services decline or tend to decline, rather than on that extra component of bringing some life, some activity, some community to those local areas. Oh, look, very much so. Unfortunately, a lot of small towns, people in their early 20s tend to leave because you know, they get out as soon as they can because there's not a lot to do. But also, interestingly enough, once they have kids and the kids get to that four, five, six type age group, a lot of people return as well because they recognise that they want that small country town environment to bring their kids up in. It had an unrushed character about it, but still a wonderful sense of community. Rob, always great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to John Crawford, Rob Fraser, Jordan Trimbath and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or you could go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.